As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform, with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere. And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. In the immortal words of Dr. Nick. Hi everybody! Today, we're staying in the Bronze Age and speaking to someone who knows far more about it than yours truly. Today, we're speaking with Dr. Ed Caswell. Ed is a lovely man who greeted me on Zoom with a big smile and jolly hello. Like Heather, in our first ever interview, I was introduced to Ed by my dissertation supervisor, Ben Roberts, who I'm hoping will be a guest on this show sooner or later. We mentioned Ben quite a few times during this episode, and I'll include links to bensacademia.edu page so you can read his work. Ben and Ed are at the forefront of academic work on the Bronze Age. No, I didn't use the word British Bronze Age. While both chaps do have a tendency to focus on Britain, something we'll come to later on, you'll see that they both understand the importance of Britain's continental context. They also both collaborated on a fantastic article which Ed was kind enough to share with me ahead of our interview. I've included a link to it in the show notes. This cremation article is a survey of Bronze Age burial traditions across the UK, and it inspired many of the questions I asked Ben. However, in part due to the length of the interview and my inexperience as an interviewer, we didn't get the chance to dig deeply into Ed's work. Please promote this episode far and wide. Both Ed and I agreed we want to do a deeper dive into the Bronze Age than we managed in this episode. I just need an excuse to justify the extra work. It would also be great to eventually do a face-to-face interview with Ed. All of my interviews for these in-between series specials have been conducted through Zoom, and whilst this is the best recorded of the three interviews I've conducted for these specials, there are still the occasional robotic blips that couldn't be removed. Finally, before we get going properly, I wanted to explain a particular style of language Ed uses. When Ed talks about dates, he will use the phrase CalBC. This is the kind of wonderfully precise language you only get from academics. BC is pretty obvious, it means before Christ, and if we ever use BP, it means before present. However, the word cal is what might throw some of you. Essentially, cal, C-A-L, is short for calibrated. 
Technically, this means that the dates have been subject to a combination of multiple dating methodologies and some clever Bayesian statistics, giving highly accurate, very precise dates. When Edge uses the word Cal, he's telling you that the dates he's provided are extra accurate. Capish? Oh, and finally, stick to the end of this episode. There is some pretty huge news once the interview concludes. But anyway, welcome to the show and welcome to Dr. Ed Caswell. I'm Andy Earnshaw, and this is Old Bones. First of all, Ed, why don't you tell me a little about who you are, where your background's from, you know, what's your story? Sure. Okay. So yeah, so my name is Dr. Edward Caswell. Um, I've only recently been a doctor. I only completed my PhD really at the uh, beginning of 2020 when I finished my corrections. Um, in terms of my archaeological story, I've really been studying archaeology in one form or another since I was a very young person because I come from an area where there's lots of hill forts, we've got Roman villas just outside the house where I live, where I live with my family. Um, there's all sorts of stuff going on around there. So I've always been interested in archaeology. Whereabouts, whereabouts was it that you, you grew up? Okay, so I, I, I grow up near a town called Yeovil. Um, it's on the Somerset-Dorset border, right outside Ham Hill, which is the largest Iron Age hill fort in Europe. Um, although it's not necessarily the most exciting one, that's probably made in Castle, but that's, that's only about half an hour away. Oh, incredible. So sorry, sorry for interrupting. So you grew up in Somerset, uh, you spent your life doing archaeology, you spent your young years doing archaeology, yeah. scrambling over the hill forts. Pretty much, yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, my wife keeps joking, it was a little bit like living in Hobbiton, because that's what Somerset's like. So yeah, so you grew up, you grew up in Somerset, living, living this bucolic life, and then what, how did you end up in this weird yeah. old career? So in terms of, I mean, it was kind of through happenstance rather than a set plan. Um, so I basically took archaeology as an A-level when they were still offering it. Um, arguably, as a, as a way of doing a bit more history, and I was thinking, oh, I'll do history and I'll go to university and do something like become a lawyer. But what happened was I was, turned out to be a lot better at archaeology than the history side of things because I don't really like reading historical texts. Um, so then I thought, well, I'll do this at university and then do something else. But then I realized I was well, I'm doing pretty well at this. So let me show you behind the curtain here. Essentially, my flat with its disjointed floor plan requires two Wi-Fi routers, and my laptop doesn't seem to understand that. Halfway through Ed's opening statements, I realized that my laptop was connected to the distant and difficult-to-connect-to router, putting our entire conversation at risk. However, I sorted it out, and we had to go right back to the beginning, which is why there's a few laughs and sometimes sounds just a little bit awkward. Anyway, back to Ed. So, yeah, so if I was to describe myself as an archaeologist, because obviously there's loads of different kinds of archaeologists, I describe myself as a specialist of the Bronze Age of Northwestern Europe, mostly uh, Great Britain, but I also like to go outside of that area because really you can't understand what's going on in this country if you don't understand what else is going on at the same time. Um, and the way I study that isn't really through digging up so much, although I do a little bit of that. It's through pulling together all the existing data we have um, from excavations, from metal detecting, um, from previous studies, and putting them into large data sets to see what patterns pop out. Um, because basically, often what you find, particularly with the Bronze Age, is you get an impression of uh, what's going on based on the archaeology. You think warfare, you think cemeteries, you think uh, expansion of settlements and farming. When you start pulling together the numbers and start seeing the real patterns of the data, it produces quite a different image of what's actually going on. 
how common approach is that sort of meta data statistic led approach to archaeology one compared with the more traditional just you know yeah. francis pius stuck in the trench side sort of archaeology sure and um, for, for the record i love francis's work he's a great narrator and he's a great digger but um so in terms of where the meta-analysis and where i am in terms of archaeological narratives in some ways I'm a little bit old school. Um, so traditionally in archaeology, there's, there's several phases in the way people have studied the past. In the, in the earlier stages, people basically wanted to dig into barrows and get as much treasure as they wanted. Uh, people then started to try and explain those as best they can. And then in the sort of late 70s, late 60s, really, um, and up into the 80s, there was a movement saying, well, let's turn archaeology into a bit more of a science. And the way they did that was by pulling lots of data together and trying to start come up with some sort of environmental modeling. Um, but there were some appropriate criticisms of that, which meant that people weren't understanding human agency. Uh, they weren't understanding the fact that you often might have very different processes create the same results in the archaeological record. Often people call it um, the problem of equine finality or you know, it's basically an issue with middle range theory. Ed mentioned something here, middle range theory. I thought I'd best explain what that is in more detail. Then I thought, why give you my ideas when I can instead read what Matthew Johnson said? Quote, Lewis Binford argued that archaeological data, stones, bones, potsherds, form a static record in the present. We carefully record stones, bones and potsherds in their position and arrangement in the ground in the here and now. But we're not interested in the here and now. We're interested in the past. Our task is to ask questions of this material in the present, questions about the past. Specifically, we are interested in the dynamics of past societies, that is the way past cultural systems functioned, developed and were transformed. Further, since science is a discipline which seeks to generalise, we want to develop generalising theories about past dynamics. All archaeologists offer possible links between statics and dynamics every time they put forward an interpretation of archaeological evidence. In practice, Archaeologists do this by making assumptions about the middle range, that is, the space between statics and dynamics. For example, we excavate a cemetery consisting of a few graves with lots of grave goods and many graves with very few grave goods. From this we infer a society characterised by wealth or social inequality. We do this by assuming a middle range link between the number and or value of grave goods and socio-economic status of the person buried. End quote. You see, in other words, middle-range theory is interested in the assumptions we make which allows us to tell stories about the past from the material surviving in the present. This is a really important moment in the development of archaeological thought. Middle-range theory prompted Lewis Binford to be the first to go to modern hunter-gatherer societies and conduct ethnographies with the specific intent of comparing the material remains created by those societies with the material found at archaeological sites. Binford hoped to use ethnography to essentially fill in the middle range and create a direct analogy between material remains and human behaviour which could then be applied to the remains of past societies. But here's the thing. Middle range theory isn't really a theory anymore. Well, not in my opinion. The middle range is archaeological theory. It is the space in which archaeologists do their theorising. Analogy through ethnography is one way we can aim to cross the middle range, but so is sociology using ideas like Marxist or structuration theory. Or we can cross the middle range using geography and explore how societies tend to use space and compare that to the material we find in the past. We can also use historical sources directly and compare what they say happened in the past with the evidence we have. 
Essentially, middle range theory here is a specific term speaking to the methods and theories archaeologists use to do archaeology, which is to try and tell more stories about the past from material remains found in the present day. And so the kickback from that in the late 80s, early 90s, was to talk about that very site-specific narrative and start to say, all right, well, if we just look at this one body, how did that person live? Um, now, actually, that's totally effective and really very useful um, in lots of different contexts. However, my feeling for the Bronze Age is we haven't really had a new narrative about explaining what happens in the Bronze Age really since the late 80s. Um, you know, I can even probably even peg it down to a book, which is probably uh, um, Settlement and Society, which was 1980s. And I think, uh, you know, going out on a bit of a limb here, it's because what we haven't done, we've got so much data now, we haven't pulled it all together once again. Now, I'll put my first hand up to say, you know, actually, you know, you need both approaches. You need it you know, both, on both sides, but I'm very much on the data side of things. And I think in terms of where archaeology is at in general, we're on a pendulum swing where we're going back to that kind of way of thinking. Um, you see that a lot with the current DNA papers coming out. That's where people are pulling all this start to talk about genomes. There's some problems out paper. Very happy to talk about that with you if you want to. Um, you know, you're seeing it also um, in more mainland Europe where they're starting to pull together these huge data sets, um, settlements, burials, metalwork, prehistoric bronze funders, these huge Bronze Age catalogues. Really fantastic work. Um, in Britain, somewhat in prehistoric studies, we're being left behind in that sense. So uh, it wasn't really any sort of Machiavellian plan to go into that area, but that's kind of that's the area I'm starting to fill. So Ed covered a lot here. Much of it is worth unpacking because it's so closely linked to what is happening across archaeology at this moment. First of all, Ed spoke about ancient DNA. In 2003, the human genome was. First of all, Ed spoke about. First of all, Ed spoke about ancient DNA. In 2003, the human genome was mapped for the first time. And in the 20 years since that momentous moment, it has only become cheaper and easier to extract and analyse DNA. We all know about this, right? DNA analysis has become commercialised by organisations... We all know about this, right? DNA analysis has become commercialised by organisations like 23andMe. Well, in that same period, archaeologists have got very good at extracting DNA from the smallest and most tiny of fragile. Well, in that same period, archaeologists have got very good at extracting DNA from the tiniest and most fragile of remains, and we continue to get better and more efficient at this process. Another global development that has affected archaeology is the explosion in data and data analysis. As Ed says, many archaeologists are recognising the value of large, centralised and open data sets. This combination of improved methodologies, increased data and a more conscientious and thoughtful approach to data and analysis has vastly increased the amount we know about the past. However, it has prompted a decisive shift in archaeology towards science. Archaeology has always struggled with where it sits in the academic world. Until the 1950s, it was seen as the grubby end of the humanities. Then radiocarbon dating became a thing, and subjects like ar- then radiocarbon dating became a thing, and subjects like sociology and anthropology came of age. Archaeology tried to turn itself into a science, which led to the adoption and development of more refined excavation te- which led to the adoption and development of more refined excavation techniques, the development of geophysical survey, and the use of software like GIS, which we'll get into at another date. Then, in the 90s, archaeology finally went postmodern and started exploring ideas such as phenomenology, feminism, agency theory, etc., etc. 
Archaeology embraced the fact that it is a social science and became all about theory, about putting people back into a record which had increasingly become data-driven. The development of new technologies and methodologies like big data, DNA analysis, etc. is prompting another shift towards a science-led archaeology. If you wanted to, you could argue that the last hundred years of archaeology thought if you wanted to, you could argue that the last hundred years of archaeological thought can be seen as a battle between the generative and interpretive elements of archaeology. On one hand, you have the generators. These are the field archaeologists who dig new sites, or the scientists who pour over what they discover. Those same sites and those same scientists tell us data or create reconstructions. Those same scientists provide us with data sets or create reconstructions. On the other hand, you have the interpretive elements of archaeology. As we mentioned, no matter as mentioned earlier, no matter how much data you generate, that data is still stagnant. As you mentioned earlier, no matter how as you mentioned earlier, no matter how much data you generate, that data is still static, fragmentary. As you mentioned earlier, no matter how much data you generate, that data is still static, fragmentary evidence which exists in the present day. It's not enough to map that data. Oh, come on, Andy. It is not enough to map that data to a set of boring stereotypes created in an industrialized, globalized, Christianized society. No. Instead, we need to use theories about social structure, power, ethnicity, identity, trade, and religion to the data. No. Instead, we need to apply theories about social structure, power, ethnicity, identity, trade, and religion to the data to see if we can understand archaeological data in new and different ways. Furthermore, it is that interpretive side of archaeology that makes it a subject relevant to us today. The data of the past is the one the data of the past is one of a very small number of data sets we have for human behavior, and so if we are to try and understand ourselves, our tendencies, and the risks that come with being human, we need to interrogate the archaeological data from multiple viewpoints. As you might have guessed, often these two camps are needlessly antagonistic towards each other. Both camps need the other. Without the data, interpretation cannot happen. But without interpretation, then data is meaningless. Definitely, and I will obviously be giving a plug to your excellent article, which I really, really did enjoy reading about the trends between cremations versus inhumations and the difference of grave goods. Uh, great article, really, really interesting article. And I could very much sense Ben Roberts' guiding hand through it as well, because it's very similar to some of the other articles that I've read by him, which is not a bad thing at all. Uh, really interesting stuff. And thanks for giving me a pot history of support. <laughs> no, no, that's, that's great. I'm, um, I love that stuff. Like, I, I'd probably put, put myself as a theoretician before I am a regional person. I find theory fascinating. So really great to have somebody who really knows it, give an introduction and give me an excuse in the episode to uh, pull out there and talk about a few different elements. So cheers for that. Really interesting. There's also a lot of interesting, interesting, interesting stuff that I want to talk about. But before we do that, I think it's really useful rather than have me do it and sort of kind of get it right. Talk to me about how would you describe the Bronze Age? Oh, that's a really... All right, so I'll, I'll give you an answer, but I'm going to give a big caveat to that at the moment. So what I'll do is describe the Bronze Age as we currently understand it. 
And I also kind of play into there how I feel like some of the research I'm doing is kind of push that forward and change that narrative. Um, but the big caveat is, in general, there's been lots of very good research in the Bronze Age since the 80s. But that narrative of what's really going on hasn't really been solidified in any sort. There's no one book you can go to. There's no one narrative you can uh, wish to go through. And really, I think if you ask the person on the street, uh, the, the opinion of the Bronze Age probably hasn't changed in maybe 60, 70 years because we haven't updated that narrative. So the current view of the British Bronze Age is, I would say, it's, it's described as a transitional period. Um, and it's divided really into two periods. Um, you've got your earlier Bronze Age, which is dating around 2400 to 1600 Cal BC. And you've got your later Bronze Age. There's lots of different ways people divide up those periods based on metalwork, based on the pottery. But the things that are going on in society are really hinged around that 1600 Cal BC uh, period. And the difference between those two periods is that one period, it's a time of really lavish burials. It's a time when metals, metalwork first starts coming into Britain. It's when we start seeing burials with daggers, with really pretty ornaments, capes, all sorts of pretty adornments. Um, but we don't really see much settlement. We don't see very much evidence for farming. In fact, there's even suggestions that people stop farming in the Neolithic. And it's only at the 1600 Cal BC point so that's our later Bronze Age, but that starts to come back in. Now, the later Bronze Age is very different from the earlier Bronze Age. It's when we start to see lots more settlements. It's when we start to see farming, as I was saying, and the nature of metalwork changes quite significantly. We start to see far more weapons coming into the record, and we start to see the way people are burying those weapons um, to change as well. So instead of them being grave goods, they're often in hordes, um, you know, really large packets of lots of artifacts in one area or another. So... That's probably the summary of what's going on in the period. In terms of the way people, ways people understand those, it's, there's, a, there's a lot of discussion in lots of different ways, but I don't think there's one consistent narrative. Themes that people like to talk about are connections to Europe, because bronze is made of copper and tin, and basically Cornwall's one of the only sources of tin in the whole of Europe. So people are probably coming from all over Europe to get Cornwall's tin, essentially, and trade it all over. So there's those continental connections. It's also time of possibly increased competition, which you can see through weapons, possibly not necessarily large-scale warfare, though. We don't have any sort of mass burial sites. Um, other themes people start to bring out is, is that appearance of farming. Um, and, you know, you could almost argue there's a sort of rise of society. And I think that, yeah, those are the main ones. Really. So, so that's, I think that's the general narrative. Um, yeah, I'll, I'll leave it at that. And then you can, you can ask me a few questions around it. But I've got one, and I feel like it's a horrible question for you, but um, since you've got the theoretical chops to be able to do it, let's, let's, let's see how this goes. That split mm. between the early Bronze Age and the late Bronze Age, that is a, a, a dramatic shift. Uh, I actually found it really difficult in the show to talk about. I actually ended up going up to Scotland to talk about mummified awesome. Frankenstein bodies yeah, at Clanhamer, which is awesome. But because I find I've not found a way to effectively talk about cremations apart from big cemeteries. Um, yeah, in, in the show, it's, it's my fault. So that gap, that shift really, really is a, a dramatic shift, more dramatic than, say, the Neolithic to the early Bronze Age in, in some ways. Do we understand why that shift occurred? How far can we start to talk about, especially with prehistory, how far can we start to see intention or answer that question, not just what happened or how it happened, but how far can we start to answer the questions, 
why did this happen? I think the answer is we're getting there. So this whole earlier later divide was only really sort of suggested in, in the 1980s. Before then, we followed a tripartite early middle, bronze, uh, early middle late. And that's really just to do with the kind of material people were using rather than things that were going on. So, you know, we only had 40 years to really understand that divide but when we are making progress. I think you're right. Up until maybe two years ago, everyone would describe the transition at 1600 being far more dramatic than, say, between the late Neolithic and the early Bronze Age. With this whole DNA project, that, you know, maybe that changes a little bit more dramatic now. We're not quite sure. In terms of understanding what's going on there, I don't know if there's a single text I could point you to which really explains why it's occurring. Um, I don't think there's really many texts which describe how significant that transition is, whether it's a single, you know, does this happen in 10 years and there's a sudden, you know, maybe there's an invasion or something along those lines. Um, I don't think there's a single text really talking about that. It, and I think I'm being fair to going, going it down those lines. People do, do talk about transitions like Colin Berger, it's really hit it. They talk about transitions where collapse in the late Bronze Age. And at the risk of plugging myself here and Ben, this is one of the things that my PhD and also the cremations article kind of does. So I think both of my projects, we can talk about how I actually argue that, yes, there is a change around about 1600, but it's not a hard line. I don't think anyone was really arguing that it was a hard line in fairness, um, but it's the sort of the center point of a hinge. Um, so we see a change um, from lots of inhumations in barrows to lots of uh, cremations in the Middle Bronze Age around 1600. But there's cremations um, at least as early as 2000, Cal BC, and they're just getting more and po more popular. So if you draw a graph, you know, that's when the things start accelerating a lot, but it's not the start point. Um, now, some cutting edge research, so this isn't published yet, this is from my own PhD, so you have to be a little bit careful about the results but also suggests actually what you're seeing in Bronze Age settlements is a ramping up at about that 1600 Cal BC point. There's also some more exciting stuff happening in that there appears to be a little bit of a dip later on, but uh, you know, we'll probably save that for another time. <laughs> um, great. That, that's really, really, really interesting. Um, let's, let's jump ahead of a couple of questions. Well, for my list as well, you obviously can't sure. see the list. Um, but... You talked about your PhD there, the doctorate. What is it that drew you towards doing a doctorate? Yeah. And as part of, and, and just, and just, and I'll just give you both of them in one go, just because I think it'd be really interesting. What is it that drew you to a doctorate? And specifically, what's your doctorate on? Because I don't think I've really got like a good idea of what it is. Sure. Or you're about to read very soon. Yeah. So my PhD is all, is basically providing a baseline study of Bronze Age settlements in Britain. And when I mean settlements, I don't mean where people, just where people live, because basically in the Bronze Age, people living all over in different spots. I'm just talking about permanent homes. So why did they start building permanent homes where they appear to stay in one location for the rest of their lives? And how do they use those? So it's all about settlements. It provides a baseline. It's certainly not as in-depth as certain people's PhDs in certain regions, but it provides a macro analysis of the whole country. So you could read that and then compare your results to anyone and say, oh, this is interesting, it's the same or it's different. Um, and the way it does that is it looks at basically what the settlements look like, when do they appear and how long do they last for, where are they placed, and what sort of things do people do on settlements. So, you know, it, it kind of summarizes everything. Um, at least that's the plan. that was the plan, and, you know, it mostly does that. In terms of how I came to that as a PhD, it was actually from my research into burials. So 
I did this big study of Middle Bronze Age burials, which looked even into the earlier Bronze Age and looked a little into Late Bronze Age. And the one real frustration at that time was we've got all these people, but I have no idea where they come from. And some of the interesting things about those results were, well, we only, you re, if you want to understand these burials, you really need to know where those people are coming from to really understand what's going on in those burials. So that missing link for me was settlements. And there was no sort of general summary of settlements at that point. So I thought, well, if I'm going to do something, that, that's what I need to do. And so I came in and so I thought, well, I'll do a PhD on settlements. Brilliant. Really, really brilliant. Um, and that's, I, I, yeah, I love that. Uh, just again, to make it a bit more about myself, which is not good when you're having a conversation or interview, but that's, it is really heartening to hear how somebody, how, this is how innovation should happen. Is you spotted a problem, you went and fixed it. And it's one of my big thoughts in my mind is, okay, how do you, how do you fall in love with a subject enough to go and spend three or six years studying it. And it's really interesting to me and really heartening to hear all the different stories as to how people ended up going on to mm. further study. Um, so yeah, just thank you for that. Um, yeah, something that you have mentioned quite a lot, and I think it's something that's really, you know, it, it's a problem is not just contextualizing sites in landscapes, not just conceptualizing landscapes in terms of regions and countries, but contextualizing Britain in its wider context. Could you, before we jump onto the problems and the practical modern day challenges of talking about a globalized world in the past, could you give me a high level intro to the, the global network that Britain existed in within during the Bronze Age? Yeah, I can give you a, a, a bit of a summary, although it, probably the best person to speak to this will be actually Ben, because that, that's literally his PhD. <laughs> so you are even better. So if I'm going to want to cause an argument in the pub, I would argue that the Bronze Age is the start of society in Britain. And it's also probably the point, it's our earliest era of globalization in Europe. So people often talk about that being in the Roman period, but I'd argue it happens in the Bronze Age, possibly a little bit facetiously. Now, the reason that I'm not going completely mad with that idea is because this is an area defined by the use of bronze. And the way to make bronze is you need two things. You need copper and you need tin. Now, in Britain, we have both of those. So, you know, it's very easy for us to make those. The thing you've got to remember is across most of Europe, there's loads of copper. There's really not very much tin. So in order to make that, you need to trade this tin over large distances. There needs to be a, a level of organization and the trade networks established to get tin from one area of the country to the other, from one area of the continent to the other. Now, so we know trade's going on for bronze to exist. Similarly, we have material evidence that suggests there might even be um, sort of religious connections or similar expressions of material culture um, between distances, for example, in sort of northern Scandinavia and as far as India. So, you know, there's evidence of connections, at least the communication of ideas over really vast distances in the Bronze Age. Now, that's not to say we're all working the same way. We've got lots of different ways of people um, living. So, um, for, you know, so there's lots of different homes, there's lots of different ways people bury, but Behind it all are these connections, which are somewhat interdependent and reliant on one another. So if you want to understand the British Bronze Age, you need to understand, well, what are we doing to help those connections? How are we being affected by those connections? And how are we in turn affecting those as well? Um, does that answer your question? It really does. Um, and I do want to, I know the, before the answer to this is talk to Ben, but I, I'd love to get your insights is, when you read a lot of Bronze Age articles, even landscape studies like your cremation one, which is great, 
it seems to be that there is very much and look when you read about and this is not a British thing it happens in France when you read French articles and it happens in Germany when you read German articles how in your opinion what is it that's preventing archaeologists from being better at contextualizing their sites in terms of the the northwestern geography or the western European geography and yeah what was what's blocking us from being better at thinking more regionally rather than purely nationally so I can't speak for everyone but I can be quite honest about what's stopping me doing that and there's two things there's being very frank about it there's the language barrier right so I don't I can read a bit of academic French um, just about and I can read a bit of German but it's a it's a hard slog and when you're wanting to do these large comparisons you can't really just go to one text you need to read lots and so um, that barrier just introduces more friction and really you know makes it difficult for me personally to do those kind of broad analyses. That's why I try and look for summary articles which can at least lead me into those and then I read the original language text from there. So there's that. There is also the issue of different archaeological traditions. Right. So we have one particular way of doing archaeology um, in England, Scotland and Wales. Well, it's even different between England and Scotland in some ways when it comes to metal detecting finds, for example. Um, but there's a very different tradition in France. And France has a very different tradition to the Netherlands. And Germany also has a very different, somewhat fragmented tradition to all of those. So having those different traditions means that there's no one set spot for the data to go to, to analyze, and that there's different biases in that record. So if anybody wants to fill that space, A, they've got to you know, be able to handle languages. B, they've got to be very knowledgeable to cope with these really complicated histories of archaeology. And I think C, ideally, the only solution to that is then to have a larger network. So there are people who do this sort of work. I mean, I'm thinking of people like Stuart Needham. He really does tackle the uh, divide. Brendan O'Connor, he's done lots of work comparing hordes um, across sort of northwestern Europe. Equally, Ben does have these networks where he starts to compare things across those regions. So people do do it. Um, and, you know, the, the, you know, so the reasons I don't do it are those reasons I set out. I suspect they're similar for other people as well. What drew you to the Bronze Age rather than, say, the Neolithic or the Iron Age? Yeah, that's a really good question. Um, I don't think it was a conscious decision for me, unfortunately, so I can't say this was the thing I was born to do. Um, but it's a thing that I've always found myself coming back to. So I did an undergrad dissertation on Bronze Age axes because I thought they were cool. My follow-up, the MA on burials, wasn't because I'd done a Bronze Age station. It was just a thing that I thought was the coolest topic that most excited me. And then the PhD was because I wanted to do more of it. And I'm doing some more work now on hordes. And again, that's Bronze Age. So it's always been the thing that pulls me, pulls me towards it. I think the exciting thing for me, and the reason I am always excited by the Bronze Age, is it's got everything going for it. It's got all the glamour because we've got these really beautiful artifacts which are really varied but also got that personal flourish. So it's not all mass produced like you get in sort of the medieval period. You get some really exciting sites, you get some really exciting mysteries. So you get um, burials like you were mentioning at Clad Hallam. Who knows what the hell's going on there? It's, it's, it's completely mad. We have these exciting monuments like Stonehenge. We've got settlements appearing and then disappearing. You get really odd looking monuments. And being serious about it, and if you're not wanting to understand Britain's development as an, as an island community, I think it's really in the Bronze Age where we start to see some element of society begin. It's not to say we didn't have communities and societies in the Neolithic period, but the sort of, all the roots of the Iron Age are in the Bronze Age. And obviously, it's, you know, when the Romans come to Britain, they're interacting with that Iron Age community. So that origin is, is in the Bronze Age, and that's the most exciting time. 
being a bit romantic about it as well. I came to archaeology rather than history because I quite like fiction books, frankly. I like that sort of escapism part of it. And archaeology provides that escapism because you really are looking into a different world. People are living very different lives to you with completely different worldviews. And the Bronze Age is one of those areas where you've still got an element of myth to it. So there's still a lot of room to provide that adventure and escapism. Excellent. And you know, I'm really glad you said that because I think... One thing I try and keep with the podcast is keep that sense of magic and mystery. And I think archaeologists, because of the, the so much pseudoscience that exists around studying the past, are understandably cautious sometimes of talking about the romantic notion. But I read, it was when I was reading about um, the Isbister tomb. I can't, oh, who was the guy who did the four? It might have been Colin Renfrew who did the, and he described the person who'd done the report as combining the rigor of the science with the flourishing imagination of a writer. And I was like, <laughs> I was like that is what archaeology is. And it's something that I think is really important that we talk about is just how emotive the subject can be, even when you are studying it through data or looking at things in almost too much detail sometimes. <laughs> it, you still can't, you can't, I think it's important that archaeologists don't forget what drew us all to it. To begin with, which is that excitement and the and the and the as humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. When I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day, lo. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. we prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. The mythos and the romance of it. Um, sure. But speaking of mythos and, and romance and, and story, if you could dispel one myth about the Bronze Age, what would it be? One myth. Oh, so many, isn't there? Um, I suppose, yeah, if I was going to go for... Is this a myth that the general public have about it or about that academia has about it? Take it, take it how you want to. Okay. So if I was going to try and add a bit more nuance to the Bronze Age, which is going a bit out on a limb, but I think is, is quite important. It's the notion of burials in the Bronze Age. And what I mean by that is um, whenever we have human remains, we always talk about burials. In the same way, whenever you have two more pieces of ice and we talk about a hoard. But that term is really laden um, with 
um, a lot of connotations that you'd always imagine. So when you talk about burial, you imagine somebody's been there and placed a body and treated the way we do today. Now, my research into middle Bronze Age cremation burials argued very strongly that actually what we're seeing are human remains, but they probably weren't seen of it seen in that same light. They weren't burying them saying, all right, this rep represents my Auntie Sue or my Uncle Derek. Um, they were using it for very different reasons. But by having that phrase burial, we're already keyed into the idea that when we find lots of them, we're dealing with cemeteries. But that's not to say that not all burials can be burials, as you'd imagine them. I think some of these early Bronze Age ones where you've got somebody laid out, you've got all their clothes on them, that totally works. But just by using that term, it, it leads us down a bit of a blind alley, particularly in the middle Bronze Age. I do want to come on to your wider work and your more day-to-day -day life, although I, I really could keep talking about the Bronze <laughs> Age. Um, but for the listeners... If there's one book for them to start off with, with the Bronze Age, or one article, obviously the cremation article, your recent cremation article. <laughs> no, I wouldn't, actually, I wouldn't suggest reading the cremation article as an intro. It's very dry. Um, uh, uh, but if, if, there's, if there's one place for people to start learning about the Bronze Age, where would you recommend? Um, so the problem with this is that there isn't a single Bronze Age textbook. In truth, there's a couple of summaries, and some of them deal with certain periods. So you've got Colin Burge's Age of Stonehenge. Um, but if you're coming into this completely new and you just want to get a sense of what's going on in the Bronze Age, I think the best written book, so it's just, it's just a real page turner, and that gives you a fair view of what's going on and tells you about the Rangers' site, is probably Francis Pryor's Sea Henge. Um, I can't recommend that enough. It's, it's very readable. He always throws in a few comments there, so it feels like you're speaking to him at a pub. And anyone who's watched Time Team knows that's, you know, that's a fun thing to do. But what he does there really well is he talks about some very key sites, talks about the changes that people would be experiencing in the Bronze Age, and he does it in a way that it sticks, at least for me, because you know it's imagining someone telling you a story. So that's where I would start if I wanted to get someone who's never read anything interested in the Bronze Age. Brilliant. If you wanted to, yeah, if you wanted to really understand the Bronze Age and sort of really like get a sense of where we're going, it's quite an old book now. I would read the two-volume monograph, Settlement and, uh, Settlement and Society, by uh, uh, Barrett and Bradley, 1980. Two old volumes, BAR. Honestly, if you read that, you probably you probably have about 80% of the knowledge of any Bronze Age specialist. <laughs> That's brilliant. I would definitely echo always reading anything by Francis Pryor. Uh, I've just finished reading his Britain AD book. Mm, yeah, it's an interesting one. That one's more interesting because obviously even he admits he's like, look, some of this stuff I'm not, I'm not as uh, interesting. I feel also sometimes he suffers from a bad marketing uh, team who is <laughs> booking the wrong place. But I, I really, I thoroughly enjoy his writing. I think he's an excellent, excellent communicator, and he knows his stuff. Um, but you currently are finds liaison officer at the Portland Antiquity Scheme. I, with Heather, I dug deep, deep, deep into the Portland Antiquity Scheme. Brilliant. But so I'm not going to ask you to repeat what she said. She did a great job of explaining what it was. But what drew you to working in the Portland Antiquity Scheme? Um, so I don't, I've, um, so my, I've actually only worked with the PAS for the last two years. So I'm in my second year now, if that makes sense. But I volunteered with them during my undergraduate and my master's. Um, because I basically wanted to get a bit more experience of what artifacts, what kind, what can you do with artifacts? Because I think it's fair to say that most university degrees, or at least the one I did, there was only limited hands-on experience with the actual artifacts themselves. There was lots of digging and that was great. There was lots of academic reading, but there wasn't very much handling the artifacts. 
So the PAS was an opportunity for me to get, get to grips with those. And in terms of why I came to it as a role and why I'm doing it now, it's kind of two reasons. One's happenstance. There was a job going quite close to where I'm originally from, literally 10 minutes away from the college. I did my archaeology A-level uh, right at the end of my uh, PhD. So it seemed like a too good opportunity to turn down. In terms of career trajectory, so I talked about how I did my burials and I did my settlements. The next feather to the cap, the next thing I really needed to do to understand the Bronze Age is go back to the artifacts. And the Portsmouth Antiquity Scheme probably provides the best opportunity to get your hands on the material, to really study and understand it and understand national trends in the data as well. I mean, it's literally, it's probably the single largest resource of artifacts on the planet. So it's great to use. Brilliant. Excellent. Definitely. Um, and so, sorry, I'm trying to think where to go. Um, you're obviously in Oxford at the moment as well, in the Oxfordshire region. Um, and obviously, as a, as a finance liaison officer, you engage with artifacts from all periods and, uh, and all across a really interesting region, which has got archaeology from every single period in, in lots of depth. So, What's it like working as a finance liaison officer in a place with such dense history and with such importance, especially during the historical period, which I know can sometimes be a bit difficult for prehistorians? Uh, and also on that same note, what is it, you know, what have you enjoyed most about spending quite a long time, you know, a couple of years working quite intensely in one region? What is it about? What have you learned or discovered about the region that you work in that has, sure. um, you know, that has grabbed your attention? You, need, you might need to remind me for the second part of the question, but I'll answer the first part and then I'll try and remember to answer the second. So, I mean, the wonderful thing about working for the Portable Antiquities Scheme, or indeed volunteering for them, is that you get so many, so much, you basically every day is an opportunity to learn. Um, the reality is, is you might see people on TV who can identify a piece of pot just like that. And, you know, there's lots of people who have specialisms in one particular area, but nobody can know it all. And at the PAS, we get a crazy amount of stuff. Um, you know, we don't just get metal. We also get pottery. We also get flints. And there's no way you can be an expert in it all. Although you have to, you have to develop the skills to try and find easy ways in to start to research those artifacts. But the flip side of that means that every day is a learning opportunity. Every day is a new challenge. Every day is uh, an opportunity to learn something more, which is, you know, frankly, really exciting. Um, it's like being in university every day, but you also get to handle these amazing objects. Um, there's a risk. I don't think I've got there yet of getting a bit blasé because what you, you know, every day you can handle a silver denarius. You, you know, some people might not find one of those their entire life, and you get these things being brought to you by these detectors all over the country um, to share their artifacts with us. So that's fantastic. So that, there's that learning side of things. I think one of the other challenges and the thing that's really important is that awareness all the time as an FLO. You don't know everything. And you've got this opportunity to work with a large network of other fines liaison officers who are incredibly knowledgeable. Some of the people have been doing this for a very long time. But metal detectorists as well have an absolutely astounding amount of knowledge, both about their local archaeology, but also about artifacts. Um, so if you, as long as you treat metal detectorists as people who are enthusiasts, just like yourself, it's an opportunity to share that passion. And that's also great fun as well. So I think those are sort of the things that I really enjoy about the PAS. And the fact that it's not prehistoric archaeology, frankly, that's just fun. You know, you, you know it, it's, it's always going to be interesting to have a, uh, for example, we just recently had a, strap, a folded knife handle, um, which has a picture of a rabbit uh, being chased by a dog. 
that's, that's, that's fantastic. You know, I'm not a rover this, but it's still pretty darn cool, right? So that that's really fun. If you like your Sudoku's, medieval coins will make will make Sudoku's look easy any day of the week because they're all little complex puzzles which you have to peg a few little details to get. So there's fun for to be had there. In terms of learning the area, Oxfordshire is amazing there. So we're right, we're a bit of a melting pot here because we're right in the centre of the country. So we get um, Anglo-Saxon archaeology, we get Viking archaeology. Obviously, there was so much going on in the Civil War. But at the same time, we also are very close to some really important prehistoric sites as well. So the challenge of Oxfordshire is we pretty much get everything. Um, and we've got some very active metal detecting communities, which isn't a challenge, it's a wonderful thing. But it means they bring us so much stuff. Um, so, you know, there's, a, there's always a balance because we only have limited resources about what we do and don't record. So that's always a balance we have to manage. Um, so I think that's the other challenge of it. But uh, again, it's, it's a fun one. It's a problem to be solved. And that's always quite exciting. Hey, um, how desperate are the PAS for volunteers? Is it something where anybody can just, if they've got an experience, can go in and learn? Or is it something where they're very selective about the people that they take on board? I mean, so what I would say to your listeners is um, we're one scheme, you know, which is part funded by the British Museum, but also by local institutions. So I'm partly funded by the uh, Oxford County Council through the Oxford Museum Service. Um, so we've, we're all quite similar, but we've also got variations. So when I was working in Somerset, we had two regular volunteers who came in week in, week out. But we also had student placements come in. Um, in Oxfordshire, we had a couple of remote volunteers and we're currently setting up some more. In Durham, I've got, I answered a call to the volunteers from, uh, um, sent out by the FLO. So every region's a little bit different. However, there's vast scope for volunteering with the PAS in general. And most finds liaison officers are always willing to basically slot in a new volunteer. You can have lots of archaeological knowledge, in which case, come along, you know, share it with us. That's fantastic. But equally, you can have no archaeological knowledge, and we're very happy to train people up. Um, obviously, it just depends in terms of the amount of time investment required that we can kind of balance that out. Um, so, for example, let's say I've got somebody who's never studied archaeology in their life, um, but we've got lots of Roman coins coming in, and they need to study those. The way we'd manage that in that instance is that I'd try and teach them how to do Roman coins, and then they've got a large project to be getting on with. So, and that, that's the way we can manage people who have a limited knowledge. But it's not just like finds identification we can do. We have people who, for example, do photoshopping for us, who do just photography. There's lots of scope for volunteers. Um, and if you want to get in contact, we have all our emails on the PAS database. So it's very easy to access. Just drop an email and, uh, yeah, and see if people get back to you, basically. Great. No, that's really good. And that is, is also something that I think I've mentioned in every single conversation. The listeners are going to get sick of it, but I'm going to keep pushing it, which is what's great about archaeology is there is this field, this field of study, which is the past. And within that, there is every discipline under the sun. And I think that's what makes it such a special subject is being able to whatever skills you've got, if you've got skills and you're interested in the past, you can do archaeology in, in some way, whatever that is. Yeah, that's uh, totally true. Uh, which is great. Um, so you're obviously working at the PAS, obviously doing some finishing up the PhD, best of luck with that. Uh, is that your entire time taken? Is there anything that's, uh, that you're working on in the, in the background? Or if not... What's your pet projects at the moment? What is it? What's the stuff that you're that's that's keeping you excited at the moment? 
Yeah. So, I mean, so the PhD is done, the corrections are done. So that's all completed. The next job is a hard slog of turning that PhD into publications. So like that journal article, getting them out there so people can read it. Although actually in about a year's time, um, anybody will be able to read it open access via the website ethos. Um, most PhDs in Britain now put there. It's a wonderful resource. Everybody should Google it because basically any PhD which is paid for partly by public funds through the Arts and Humanities Research Council has to go up there because it belongs to the country. So everybody should Google that. And in a year's time, if you do that, you'll read my PhD there. Um, in terms of my other line of work, so I mean, basically every evening I'm doing a bit more reading, learning about science for the PAS, but I'm also developing a project currently studying Bronze Age hordes in Britain. Now, the background for that is really is to provide more contextualization for my settlements. So have, I have the locations of pretty much all the burials in Britain from the Bronze Age. I have all the settlements. Um, the other thing, the Bronze Age is not called Bronze Age for nothing. There's loads of metal going around. Um, but how does that slot in? There were some quite exciting results from my PhD suggesting that far more sites were making metal artifacts than we first thought. And so the only way to understand that is to say, well, where is the rest of the metal being placed at the time? How do those connect to the settlements? So I'm trying to make a comprehensive database of all the Bronze Age hordes in Britain using Portal Antiquity Scheme data, using past research. And hopefully, this is in the grand scheme of things, we might be able to make some sort of shared resource so people can go and see, oh, there's this hoard near me, there's this hoard near me, that sort of thing. But we'll, we'll see how that pans out. It's, it sounds like by the time you get bored of the Bronze Age, you'll have created the map of British of Britain in the Bronze Age of where all the burials are, cremations and, and cemeteries, where all the settlements are and where all the hordes are. I mean, that's a dream, right? So uh, I started off very early in this conversation talking about how lots of other countries are building up these large data sets. Now in Britain, we're not tending to do that. No surprise then that I think what the thing I think needs to do, and I'm trying to do slowly, is build up a somewhat comprehensive data set of Britain's Bronze Age. It's because I, I think you can only, by combining those data sets and seeing the full big picture, actually understand what's going on. Hundred percent. I, I, re I really, really agree with that, and I, I think this also speaks to something about academics, which sometimes goes. This is a great example. Obviously, at the moment, everybody's sort of like in love with academics for good reasons. <laughs> uh, but I think what's really interesting about that is it shows how starting in your undergrad, masters, PhD, post PhD study, it's it's that constant slog to just build human knowledge and build human understanding. It's a great case study in how academics works and why academics is important and why, yeah, okay, this guy's just studying cemeteries. Okay, but you don't see the 10, 15 year plan or the 10, 15 year potential where it goes into something bigger. So just sure. gonna just, just give a pump for academics there. <laughs> um, just before we bring this to a close, because I am aware of the time, obviously you're focused on the database, you're focused on the landscapes and the regional stuff, but is there a pet sigh or a pet find or a pet bit of archaeology that you just absolutely love? Oh, a pet Oh, that's a, that's a tricky question because I, lots of people will be able to come up with really wonderful answers to that because I, I, I do a zoomed out view. Often you, you lose that um, wood through the trees, that um, essentially. Oh, I'm going to have to come back with you on that. I'm not sure I have necessarily a favourite Bronze Age site, if I'm honest. I mean, there's loads of wonderful ones, which you know, I could reel off, but that's not very useful to your listeners. Hmm. Let me see. Well, I'll tell you what, here's an exciting site, which 
it's not my favorite. Might need to edit that out. But this is all okay. So this is a wonderful Bronze Age settlement site. So there's a place in Sussex called Ifford Hill. It's a Bronze Age settlement, um, and it's interesting from a settlement perspective because initially it was interpreted as quite a large settlement with about 17 huts, I believe, um, occupied for maybe 200 years. Um, it was excavated really well uh, in the 1950s, um, but what because it was excavated really well, it allowed. Um, later archaeologists, uh, Lady Anne Ellison now, and Woodward, to re-study that site and realised it wasn't occupied all at the same time. It was actually a much smaller settlement um, of probably only two or three houses occupied at one time and then it's spreading over. So the interpretation of that site completely changed. So that's kind of exciting. It's, it's an example of how we can go back and re-study excavated settlement sites. But the kind of cool thing about that one, and it completely puts a spanner in the works for a lot of my burial-related stuff, is that nearby there's a barrow cemetery and there's creation cemeteries in those barrows. Now, just because Anne Woodward is this amazing archaeologist who has this great eye for pottery, she noticed when looking at the um, pottery found with those burials and the pottery found with that settlement site, there were two shirts which refit each other. So that's one from the settlement, one from the burial. So it's the only instance in Britain where we can peg that we know this cemetery site is associated with that settlement because they come from the same thing. Pretty amazing, pretty wonderful. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. When I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. ChumbaCasino.com has over 100 casino style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No Basically, comes from joining up some really good archaeology in the 50s with an absolutely phenomenal archaeologist brain. And, and then, you know, everybody cites it now. It's a really wonderful um, site. That's just. That's incredible. That is yeah. really incredible. Um, okay, and it's Candid- relegated to like one line in the journal article. <laughs> it's a crazy thing. It's amazing. If I if if I did if I found that that would be all over my social media. But I am the best. <laughs> like, that is incredible. Okay, so I know Ed and I just guffawed in the nerdiest way about two bones, but I want to take a moment to talk about something that is very important, and which is why we were both so blown away by that factoid. Not all the excavations are created equally. There's a reason why archaeologists are suspicious of metal detectorists and nervous about the government defunding archaeology. You see, archaeology is something that happens, I guess, in six dimensions. Yes, it happens in our 3D world. There is archaeology beneath, above, and all around you. 
However, archaeology is also a conversation in the present day and with the past. So far, so unremarkable. Archaeology, though, it's also a conversation with the future. We're preserving the past so future generations can understand the world in which they live. Taphonomy, the preservation and recovery of archaeological material, is a dry and technical subject, but one which is vitally important. You see, if archaeologists don't have the time to work properly, things don't get recovered, databases don't get completed, and objects don't get stored in the best conditions. And this is actually a problem that archaeology is facing right now. The explosion of archaeology in the last 20 years has led to a massive backlog of what's called grey literature. Piles and piles and piles of archaeological data sets which haven't been published into formal reports yet. All of which means that if reports don't get published, if data doesn't get recovered correctly, if excavation isn't done properly, when archaeologists return to visit the data in the future, they are left with a fragmentary record, leaving them to curse us in the same way we get frustrated with Victorian antiquarians. Improved methodologies and political developments in the last 20 years show us how important it is to not just preserve archaeological material for its own sake, but also for the sake of future archaeologists who have access to that better technology. Uh, look, this is sort of the way I end it. I've stolen this from the Ologies podcast completely. Uh, I, I'm, not, I'm, not, I'm not even subtle about it. But there's, I have three or four questions just to end it. Quick fire, just yeah. fun ones. What's, what's the worst thing about your job? The worst thing about being an archaeologist? The worst thing about being an archaeologist is when you're having to dig with a mattock on clay soil in the wind and the rain, and there's no coffee on it because the kettle's broken. That, that's the worst thing for me, and that's why I don't do digging. Basically. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I hear you. I hear you. And um, on, on the flip side, what's the best thing about being an archaeologist? The best thing about being an archaeologist, sounds a little bit sad, is that escapism and getting to almost live in the past and explore new worlds pretty much every day. Wonderful. And I like how you're actually treating these like quick fire questions. Excellent. It's what I want for people. Um, okay, last two. What do you wish people asked you about your job or about the past that they never do and you always wish you could give them a great answer? Here, Ed paused to consider his answer for a long time. This is what I like about academics. They don't feel as forced as others to fill the silence with inanity. Instead, like Ed, they pause, consider their answer, and then respond with something wonderful. I suppose, uh, yeah, you know, being completely honest, any opportunity to talk about what's going on in the Bronze Age. Um, so what do you know about the Bronze Age today that you didn't know last week would be a wonderful thing? Because often what we get asked is, oh, what's the best thing you've ever found? And for me, it's about the story rather than the individual data points. And how would you answer that question though? If somebody asked you, what, what do you know now that you didn't know last week? So, so well, what I know now, which I probably didn't know, say, a year ago, and it's a pretty big deal, um, is people like to talk about the Bronze Age not being about bronze, it's about settlement, it's about changes in society. One of the big findings from my uh, PhD is actually bronze is probably pretty important for driving the change that's happening in the later Bronze Age. So maybe the Bronze Age really is all about bronze, and that's a huge deal. I, I, I really, somebody needs to write that article putting the bronze back in Bronze Age because uh, <laughs> uh, I, I won't like that's how I chose my essay subjects, which was which one could I come up with the best title for? Uh, when I was, <laughs> <laughs> that's a great way. I like that. <laughs> I, I, just to close, what what's the one thing that you wish you knew about archaeology before going into archaeology? I suppose my parents would say how bad, badly paid the job is. Um, <laughs> But seriously, um, 
I think this is probably more for anybody who's currently studying archaeology, doing a PhD, doing an MA and finding it really tough, is that you can't know it all. And it's okay not to know it all. You only have so many hours in a day to read and it's a literally limitless subject. So it's okay just to do your best to read into what you can do and do the best interpretation of the data that you have at the time. Um, you'll probably hint there's a little bit of PhD, post-PhD blues in that answer. That's because they're, they're hard. Uh, <laughs> they are, they're a really tough thing. I don't know anyone who's found their PhD easy. Um, but I think that's true for anybody studying the past. Um, you know, we, all, all we can do is do the best that we can with the data that we have. Excellent. Uh, I love that. And that's a lovely place to end. Thank you very much, Ed. That was really, really, really interesting. Oh, my pleasure. <laughs> Ed deserves a huge thank you for joining us today. He was warm and friendly and erudite. He was patient when we ran into technical issues and after the Zoom call stopped recording, we had a further great conversation. However, our episode isn't ending just yet. Eli, the inspiration for last month's episode, has increased his commitment and also asked a great question at the same time. That's right, patrons get to ask questions and this one is a doozy. Eli asks, quote, Lately, I've wondered what theories there are as to why ancient Bronze Age people would sacrifice bronze items into lakes and bodies of water. How much of a sacrifice was it to give up these objects? Was bronze rare so these sacrifices were painful, or was bronze plentiful and these sacrifices were merely tradition and not too much of a sacrifice? End quote. You all know I love anything that mentions prehistory and theories in the first sentence. First though, what on earth is Eli talking about here? Well, it was something we didn't cover a lot in the main season. You see, while many Bronze Age communities didn't do much burying of their dead and so kind of difficult for this podcast to cover, they did do something even more enigmatic. At sites like Flag Fen, a marshy site in the east of England, they deposited literally hundreds of bronze objects in the water. Well, deposited is a bit of a dry word. At Flag Fen, they built a vast platform out across a lake, and there either dropped or threw jewellery, tools, and weaponry from the platform into the dark brown waters of the fens. These items represent some of the largest hordes ever found in Britain. And while some of the items had clearly lived a previous life as tools, many had never been used save to have been broken in half or bent over someone's knee before being given to the waves. So Eli's question is, how painful was giving up these Bronze Age items? The answer, economically at least, is significance. Bronze was widespread. As Ed says, we call this the Bronze Age for a reason. There was a lot of bronze about. And while many of the items we found were sacrificed and unused, bronze wasn't a purely symbolic material. It was used for tools, it was used for weaponry, and it was used for jewellery. It had real, tangible value to these people. Furthermore, just because there was a lot of bronze didn't mean it wasn't important or valuable. In fact, it was probably the most highly valued material during this period. Bronze would have been expensive because there is only one source of tin in Western Europe, in Cornwall. That means that whilst there was a lot of bronze, it wasn't like stone or wood. Bronze was limited and only acquired through specialists. You need specialists to uncover the raw material, specialists to extract the metal from the ore, specialists to blend the tin and copper into the right ratios to create the right sort of bronze, Specialists to transport those ingots of tin, copper and bronze, and specialists to craft those metals into objects. For all these reasons, bronze was valuable and, surprise surprise, 
we see the first strong evidence for social stratification during the Bronze Age. Access to bronze was restricted to the elites. So, bronze was valuable. Giving it up was the active deprival of useful, valuable objects of which there was a limited number, like the definition of sacrifice. That said, it didn't have the same sort of value that we think of when we think of the word value. Money wasn't a thing yet. Instead, what was being sacrificed at sites like Flagfen was the labour cost and the opportunity cost to use those materials for bettering the community. All of which I think provides some insight onto the sort of pain associated with these sacrifices. While there was a cost associated with giving up the bronze, it was probably seen as worthwhile. Indeed, the fact so many objects were new when they were sacrificed suggests that for many, sacrifice was the purpose of creating these bronze objects. The time and resources spent on acquiring material which was spent in expectation of the sacrifice was why people wanted bronze. In this way, bronze is acting in a similar way to the long barrows of the early Neolithic. Those long barrows are needlessly large and many argue that the construction of the mounds was a communal effort and it was the effort expended that mattered more than the mound itself. The mound was a physical representation of a choice to put effort into something which wasn't economically useful, but was spiritually and socially important. It may be that the bronze objects deposited were representations of the effort of the community, and destroying those objects was a way to ensure that the effort, the faith, expended wasn't a one-off. By having to repeat the process, spiritual and social connections were reinvigorated in a regular fashion. Some, including yours truly, would argue that those connections are more important than the monetary value of the objects, especially in small agricultural societies where communal connections are vital to the effective functioning of society. We live in a society in which the aesthetic, technological and economic value of an object is the primary purposes of an object. We want nice, useful and expensive things, like a nice house, a good TV or a fancy car. While I think our desires for nice, useful and expensive things have been shared by many people in the past, especially those who have sat at the top of societies, I don't think it has been the most important thing for most people in the history of the world. Actually, I don't think it was the most important thing for most people until the consumer revolution of the 1950s. So, Eli, I've kind of given you two answers. The economic cost of bronze sacrifice was huge. However, I think any society which is willing to take such an economic hit is saying that they believe there are more important things to society than the economy. Asking what was more important than the economy to societies living in the British Bronze Age is fascinating and, as you might have guessed, I am restraining myself from not just making statements about the past, but also using that insight from the past to explore how we might build a different society to the one we currently inhabit. I also want to give a big shout out to Sage. She isn't a part of the Patreon community anymore, but she still holds the record for the most amount of money given to the show. I appreciate it so much, and especially during a difficult time during season one, when my health wasn't 100%, donations like hers get me going. If you want to ask questions, get early ad-free access to the show, and talk with me directly, join the Patreon, www.patreon.com forward slash bones and stuff. The link is in the show notes. There's a reason why I'm pushing the Patreon hard today. And it's linked to that big news I've mentioned. For the last few months, I've been telling people that this episode, our July episode, will contain some big news. Here it is. Now, as many of you will know, season one of this podcast followed a fortnightly schedule. That meant a 15-episode season took six months to get through. Since the end of season one, we've become a monthly show. And I want to explain why that happened and why we're going to remain a monthly show. 
When the show started, I had been asked to go down to four days a week at work. That's a whole other story, but the reason I accepted a four-day work week and the resulting drop in salary was that I wanted to use that extra day for this passion project of mine. I also got really good at making pizzas. However, towards the end of season one, just before coronavirus hit, I was asked to go back to five days, which I accepted because I was about to get married and the extra money would have been very useful. So, what with having a lot less time and also needing to read for an entirely new season, I decided to shift towards a monthly show. A temporary thing, in between seasons, to give me enough time to make season two even better than season one. And then I got some news, some very unexpected news. See, last September, whilst I was on my summer holiday and a little bored, I sent off a few applications, just, you know, to test the waters. Well, in March, I was told that they had all been successful, and one of those applications was to the University of Oxford. In October of 2020, I will begin studying for a Master's in Archaeology at the University of Oxford. I am unbelievably excited. The reason I left archaeology after my time at Durham was that I didn't feel mature enough. I didn't feel I didn't have an interesting perspective and that staying within academia would result in me never developing that interesting perspective. It has always been a dream of mine to return to this subject, which I love. There really is no better way to do that than via Oxford. Needless to say, this podcast and you, my listeners, have played a hugely important role in this career change. Creating the show, especially preparing for season one, was what reminded me of how much I need to be working in this field. It was while sharing my ideas for the show that soon-to-be Mrs. Bones remarked, Andy, this is what you need to do with your life. And that's right, she's still soon-to-be Mrs. Bones. Coronavirus and Oxford have both conspired to put the wedding off for another year. But it's not just the creation of the show that has been genuinely life-changing. The feedback and support from so many of you has shown to me that maybe now I have that interesting perspective, that maturity I felt was necessary to return to archaeology. Many podcasters try and tell their listeners that they have changed their lives. Usually that's because they've got a book deal or because they're able to quit their job. That's not happened to me. Well, not yet. Instead, this small show of ours has done something far more important. It's given me the confidence to start on the long and tortuous path towards being the man I always wanted to be. So I hope you know that this is genuine when I say thank you, thank you, thank you. But, he says with a wry smile, that does impact the show. Season 2 will have to continue on a monthly schedule. With a strict set of deadlines and a unique opportunity, the podcast will have to come second to my education. That said, the quality will improve. For example, I'll have access to bar journals. These are the gold standard for traditional archaeological scholarship in Britain. I won't lie, they intimidated me in my first year at uni, but over my time at Durham and ever since, from the scraps that are available online, I've grown to love them, and having access to those journals, as well as the Sackler and Bodleian Library, as well as the day-to-day -day intellectual sparring that is an Oxford life, will only improve the show. I hope you're all okay with a slightly longer, better research show that happens to only appear in your feed once a month. At any rate, who knows, I may be able to release some ad hoc episodes to bridge the gaps. For example, Oxford is a centre for early medieval research, so I may be able to get some extra interviews recorded. I may also tidy up, record and release some of the many essays that I'll be writing, especially to Patreons, to give you a window into what life as an Oxford student is like. Get in touch, please, and let me know what you'd like to see. Furthermore, if you are able to, please do join the Patreon. At the moment, my job is a great one, and I've been lucky to keep that job throughout lockdown. However, from September, soon-to-be Mrs. Bones and I will be a single-income household. 
We won't starve. We've been saving away a lot for the last year or two. However, if there is one year when your support will be extra appreciated, it'll be this year. But that's enough begging and emotion. I'm starting to get uncomfortable in the way only a British person can. If you do have any questions for me or for Dr. Ed, get in touch. The email is in the show notes. I'll be back in a month with another interview, a shift towards the early medieval period. We'll be talking to Dr. David Petz. Thanks for listening. You're all lovely. I'm Andy Earnshaw, and this is Old Bones. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform, with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere. And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.